expecting in the next couple months now. We've already had three in the past, yeah, like three months. <clears throat> so if you know any of those ladies, it'd be a good idea to pray for them and just ask for, uh, for God to take care of them and deliver them, you know, kind of a thing. Uh, Christine Stockland, she is due any day now, John's wife. Um, and then we have several more. I know Jen, Zane is here. Jen's probably at home. Work, oh, she's, yeah, her body's building a baby while she's working this morning. And so it's, it's amazing. We love babies and uh, we got a lot of them coming. So uh, be sure to pray for them. And also we want to pray for um, our partners in Guatemala this morning. Uh, we've kind of been checking in on them. They've had, man, major problems. Like, so you take COVID, which is bad, and especially in Guatemala City, but then you couple the fact that they've been hit by a hurricane and a majority of the country is made of mountainous regions. And so, like, you know, there's a chance that some villages could be no more after this week of all the rain that they've had. So mudslides are terrible. A lot of things are going on. Um, our kind of our contact in Guatemala, uh, she's been kind of keeping us updated that their family is safe, but there's a lot of villages and such that are just not. And so we want to take a minute and pray for them this morning. And, uh, you know, it's an important thing that we get to, to partner with them because it Man, it just shows us that the gospel is not just about America. You know, it's about, man, the rest of the world. And, um, man, so we need to keep them in our thoughts and prayers. So let's do that for a little bit this morning. So if you would take a minute, pray for them, pray for their safety, uh, pray for the organization that, we're, that we get to partner with, Food for the Hungry. They're already setting up aid and doing things like that, which is one of the reasons that we support them because they do such a great job at that. Uh, they are the hands and feet of Jesus even when we can't be there. Uh, which is a majority of the time, so we want to pray for them and pray for their ability and keep them safe too. So take a moment, if you would pray for uh, Guatemala, specifically Cacapec, which is the village we partner with, and then I'll close this out and we'll get going. God, we thank you that the gospel is for all people in all places at all times. Um, God, we thank you that it extends and crosses over language barriers and cultural barriers, uh, economic barriers, racial barriers, all of those things. God, we thank you for our partnership with Food for the Hungry uh, and specifically in Guatemala. Um, God, we thank you that we can uh, not just support them financially, but we can support them in person, we can support them in prayer, and today, God, we come to you asking for uh, safety for the people of Guatemala, and safety especially for the people in Cacapec that we've come to know and love and serve uh, from children to grandparents. Uh, Father, we pray that you protect those families, uh, we pray that you protect the village, um, pray that the weather would pass over quickly, and that parents would be safe. And God, for those who, uh, who are not doing as well as a result of rock slides, landslides, mudslides due to the weather, God, I pray that uh, our partnership with Food for the Hungry, God, uh, the Food for the Hungry staff could go in and be, uh, be your hands, be your feet, and serve those people. And through that, God, you would receive the glory. Through that, God, your name would be shared, your glory would grow, um, and people would be provided for. Their needs would be met, uh, both physically and spiritually. God, we thank you um, that even though we're not there in body, in person, God, we know that you are moving, that you are working, uh, because your mission is bigger than any of us. Um, and God, we even know that your heart is bigger than ours for the people of Guatemala. Uh, thank you for allowing us to partner with you as we serve them and uh, to see the kingdom grow there. God, we thank you for today, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So if you guys would... Uh, as you think about it, as you feel led this week, remember to pray for them. They're not out of the woods yet by any means, um, because with the weather stuff, even after the storm passes, 
like they start to dig out and they start to see, you know, the depth of, of just the, man, the loss and the destruction. So continue to pray for them this week. Uh, today we are in the third week of our look in First uh, John. Last week we talked about several if-then statements because we talked about the fact that this book was written to the people uh, in and around Ephesus, and John is writing it to them so that they may have confidence in their salvation. He's giving them a series of statements, these conditional ideas, like we talked about the indicators of, man, this is, uh, if this is here, then there's a good chance that your relationship with God is there and it's good. But if this is here, there's a chance that it's not. So contrary to that, today uh, we're going to be just in the first six verses of chapter 2. And similar to last week, he started last week with a passage that we looked at with a theological premise that would move into doctrinal ideas. He made a statement about God, informed us about some things about God and what we needed to know, and as a result of that, what do we need to do with it, or how do we put our theology into practice and let it become doctrine. Today, we're going to look at um, six verses that normally, to be honest, would, would take about three weeks, but we're going to try to do it in one. And so the, the depth of detail that, that I would love to go, we're just not going to do it just for the sake of, man, we're going to try to read it the way the people of the time would have read it, and they probably wouldn't have spent three weeks on it. So today we're going to read it, and we're going to try to get as much as we can out of these six verses in, in about three and a half hours. Um, that's a preacher joke. We're not going to be here for three and a half hours. Uh, and so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open those. It's going to be on the screen. We're sorry that we, we still are not putting Bibles out back there if you don't have one, hopefully Again, hopefully as things return to normal, we'll be able to have those back out. But if you, in the meantime, if you need a Bible, if you don't have one, man, feel free to reach out to us. Let us know. We will get you one. We'll get your name on it. We'll make it pretty. We'll make it yours. Uh, but just let us know if you need a Bible. We would love to take care of that. So let's start 1 John chapter 2. Uh, we'll go ahead and read the, those six verses, and then we'll, we'll kick back off at the beginning and, and chat through those. It says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation, we'll come back to that, for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And so again, John is writing to uh, the early church, the people that have, you know, probably very recently began to follow Jesus, late 90s, uh, early to late 90s AD. And so this whole gospel thing was still fairly new in the scope of history. For a lot of people, it could have been days, weeks, months, years old. And so he's taking the, the opportunity to, to be the spiritual father that he is and just kind of coach them along, push them along to say, hey, I, I need you to know a few things. And like we talked about in week one, He's also combating this, this new religion that is growing out of uh, Christ, Christian ideas and also coupled with Greek methodology called Gnosticism, which is this idea of it's about what I know that's born in me, the light that I was born with that actually saves me. It's not about the death. It's not about the life. It's not about the birth and the resurrection of Jesus. No, it's about what I know. And so they were creating this, this form of humanism here, and so John is already taking the opportunity to say, no, there's some things that you need to know that are contrary to what you were hearing. And so he starts, and he goes ahead, and he sets off the reason that he's going to write these, pat, these verses and then the others that we're going to see in the weeks to come. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. 
He's like, look, my spiritual kids, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, I'm writing this to you so that, so that you won't sin. Like, I think in, I've been forced to examine over the past year, like, not necessarily the things that are wrong with Americanized Christianity, but just to take stock of how we view the church, Jesus, God, as a result of my Americanisms. And so one of the things, and I think this might be cultural across the world, we're definitely seeing it in Europe and other places that are becoming more post-Christian, the word sin no longer has much relevance. Sin is an outdated idea. It's, it's not necessarily pertinent to the way that we live our lives because the, you know, what culture is going to determine is, you know what, this is what's right and this is what's wrong. What is right is what makes you feel good. What is wrong is something that makes you feel bad. But the problem is Scripture doesn't agree with that. Scripture actually gives very concrete handles to this idea of righteousness and sin. It's there. It's there from the very beginning. As a matter of fact, it is the very wall that was built between us and God that Jesus came to knock down physically, spiritually, and all of those ways, uh, and we call that sin. It entered in through Adam, and then it continued, perpetuated by our choosing uh, to the point to where it's looked at, looked at in Scripture as active rebellion against God, His ways, His desires, His heart, His mission, all the things that make God, God. And we call that, as a result of Scripture and as a result of the goodness of God, we call that sin. It's real, it's there, and, and we can't get around it. It doesn't matter if it makes you feel bad, it doesn't matter if it makes you feel good. That is irrelevant to a degree. Sin is sin. Sin is, like we talked about before, we have this imaginary bullseye. God is at the center, and when we miss his heart, his desire, his plans for us, that is sin. We can't debate that. No way around it. And so we can't sanitize it. We can't wash it away. We can't sweep it under the rug and doesn't, don't pretend that it, it exists. It's, it's there. And so John starts out this particular part of this letter, and he says, My little children, I'm writing the following words to you so that you may not sin. I think we have to adopt a, a soldier mentality when it comes to sin, and I'm, I'm afraid that we, we fear doing this, but like when a soldier enters the battlefield, this is not their, their way of going in. They don't go in and say, um, I'm only going to get shot a little today. I'm only going to miss some of the bullets. You know, because if they went into battle like that, guess what? They would die really quickly. No, a soldier's aim is, I'm, I don't want to get shot at all. Like, I don't want to get hit a single time, because if I get hit, I'm taken out, I'm done, I'm toast. Like, for us, this is the admission that we have to start with. If we are seeking to follow after Jesus wholeheartedly, wholebodily, wholemindedly, we need to go at this and say, look, my intent, my desire is that I don't get hit once, that I don't take a single shot. If we go in with the perception that a little sin is okay, man, we're already behind the eight ball. We've already chosen that we're not going to live up to the mark that God has set, that we're okay with missing it. The problem is that wasn't Jesus' attitude. That wasn't God's heart for us. And so John is echoing that from the get-go. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Our goal should be that we don't get hit by a single shot. Out of the gate, we have to start there. But here's the understanding. He says, I'm writing to you these things so that you may not sin, but he continues in verse 1. He says, but if anyone does sin, here's our first theological idea. He says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's saying, look, I'm telling you these things and all these things that are about to come, I'm telling you these things so that you will not sin, so that you can avoid them, so that you can stay away, so that you can adopt the mentality that you don't want to get hit a single time. But 
If you do, children of God, you need to understand that we have, the first theological term, we have an advocate in Jesus. An advocate, like if you've been around the adoption world or if you've been around the fostering world, uh, very often they're going to take a child who has no home, who has no family, or has been removed from that, and they're going to give them the courts, the legal system, they're going to give them an advocate because that child is incapable of fighting for themselves. That child is incapable of going to court and making sure they get what they need, what they deserve, uh, what they require for life, and they're going to be given an advocate, someone that will go and fight for them and say, this is unfair, they need more. They need a family that will love them. This family's trying to kill them, let's remove them. They've been given an advocate. Here, John is saying, look, the goal is no sin, but there's an understanding that there's going to be a battle, a war. Paul talks about it frequently, about the flesh and the spirit. Uh, There are going to be times where we are going to fail. We are going to miss that mark. And John says, look, when that happens, understand, man, Jesus is still there. He's still there. The same battle that he started at birth through his words, marched to the cross to conquer, rose from the dead to continue to beat down, and ascended just to prove that he could. He's still there. Just because you've missed the mark doesn't mean that he's turned his back on you. He's still fighting for you. He's still uh, standing in on your behalf because you're incapable. Our advocate, Jesus, is still there. I think for a lot of us, due to our, our poor perceptions of uh, who God really is and who Jesus really is, and also what we think about sin, we believe that the moment that we sin as a believer, God turns his back on us, or that he's already fuming and he's angry and he's ready to strike us down. John's also countering this idea that, man, no, no. If you have been redeemed, bought with this very high price of Jesus, and you've set out on the goal not to sin, but you made a mistake, you sinned, Jesus is still there. He has not left you. As a matter of fact, he's still doing everything that he did to grab your attention, to pull you in, to keep you there, to redeem you. He's still doing every single one of those things for you, for you, for me. Now, this is not, here, here's the hard part. I think when we hear this, when we think, yeah, we should go out about it and not sin, right. But when we do sin, Jesus is still there. I think that creates in our rebellious heart a desire to say, well, okay, it doesn't matter what I do. That's not true either. The problem is sin does matter. Sin does do things. It does not separate us from the love of God because nothing can once we have been grafted into family, but it interferes. It creates problems. And so he says, look, if Go at it like you don't want to get hit a single time, but understand if you do transgress, if you do make a mistake, if you do sin, we need to call it what it is. If you do, Jesus is still there. He's our advocate. And then the second thing, he continues on. He says, uh, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Verse 2, he says, he is the propitiation for our sins. And I think on the screen I put uh, what uh, other translations are going to call it because that's a word that only pops up like once in most modern English translations, not one that we're going to use very often. So most of us, we may have never heard that. That's okay. It says, he is the propitiation or the atoning price for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. The second theological statement that John is going to make in this passage is not only is he our advocate, but he is our atonement. 
He's our atonement. And so, yes, the goal is don't get hit a single time. Avoid sin at all costs because this is the heart of Jesus. But if we do, we have an advocate, and also we need to understand that the debt that we have racked up, the debt that we have created that is caused by sin, Jesus is paying for it. So it's amazing to think in legal terms because this wouldn't exist in any court system anywhere in the world or anywhere in time. So not only do we have a lawyer who's willing to fight for us in court and say, no, don't send them to jail forever, don't ostracize them, don't separate them from the love of the court, but then that very same lawyer says, yes, they've made a mistake, and because it's so egregious in relation to the holiness of God, I'll pay for it. So we have someone that's willing to fight for us and then someone that's willing to pay for our mistakes. An advocate and an atonement in one person, the person of Jesus. And that is insane. It's counterintuitive. Uh, it's counteremotional. It's countercultural. It's counter-everything. But that's Jesus. He says, I'm willing to fight for you because you can't do it. I'm willing to go before God and say, no, don't send them away. And guess what? I'll even pay the price that they could not. He's our advocate Man, and he's our atonement. And that makes zero sense. I do think that we need to look at the gospel and just admit that, that it makes no sense, that it is, man, it is crazy. It's ludicrous. It's completely outside of the realm of possibility with the way that we would do things. And that's why it's so beautiful. Jesus says, I will battle for you. I will fight for you. I will stand in for you when you screw up, and I'll pay for your mistakes. Not because you deserve it, but because I love you. But because I love you. It says that he's also our atonement. And not just ours. You know, there's this other statement too, because another uh, possibility for us when it comes to thinking about Jesus and thinking about the sacrifice, thinking about the fact that he is our advocate, that he is our atonement, we make it so incredibly personal and so much about me that we make Christianity very egocentric. We allow God to, to revolve around us, the price of Jesus to revolve around us. But John qualifies this a little more, and it says, uh, He is our propitiation for our sins, and not for ours, but only, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world, or any, any and all who will believe. And so then it, it lets us know that this is not just about me. It's not just about my mistakes. It's not just about the ways that I have assaulted the goodness of God. But it's also about the rest of the world. He's their advocate, and he's their atonement too, if they just believe. And so, again, John's like, you've got to take your eyes off of you a little bit and look outside and realize that this is for all people in all places at all times. So think about them as well. It says, so he's our atonement, not just, for our, not just ours, but the others. And then there's a, little, there's a little break in the three statements that are being made here with just the next. And it says, uh, but also for the sins of the whole world, verse 3, and it says, and by this, here's one of those indicators, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. We'll pause right there. And so before we get to our third idea that, that John is going to make and make a statement about, um, man, he's telling us, uh, again, like I said last week, um, and Jason was so, quickly to, so quick to text me about it, um, there's two things in my life that make me mad. Somebody hitting me in the head, my brothers know well, if they want to get me mad and make me fight, they walk up and pop me in the back of the head. I don't like that. Something in me flips, and I immediately go red, and I just, I just want to fight. I don't know what it is. But then also when somebody calls me a liar, most people don't like being called a liar. 
And again, he's throwing it out there very quickly early in the letter. So I'm sure a lot of the people put the letter down. But he's telling them, look, uh, in verse 3, he says, And by this, here's an indicator, uh, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him. He says, look, here's your indicator. If you know God, do what he tells you to do. And if you say you know God, like if you claim it, it's in quotation marks, so apparently people were saying, yeah, I know God, but they were unwilling to do the things that he's directed them to do. He said, you people, those people, maybe it's you, maybe it's me, you're a liar because you don't know him. Because if you did, you would do what he asked. I think there's this, this very simple process um, that we see play itself out. We see it play itself out in the miracles. I think if you go back and, and listen to the previous series that we did, the conversation series, you would see it play out in a lot of these deals. Like when we see God for who he is, it immediately points us to our sin. We repent, we confess, and then we, we are granted forgiveness. As in a result of forgiveness, we love God, and if we love God, we do what he asks. Is it always that simple? No, but it should be. Like, I remember my parents consistently, they would always pull the card. Like, mom would walk down the hall, and she'd swing open my door, and she'd look at the room, and she'd say, hey, Matthew, clean your room. And I would I'd probably be paying, playing a, a two-button video game, which was the original Nintendo. It's all the buttons you need, you know, playing that. And I would say, sure, I'll, I'll do that. Yeah. Voice hadn't changed yet, so yeah, I'll do that, mom. She'd close the door, walk away. I wouldn't do anything. And she'd walk back down the hall, and then she'd open the door. She'd say, Matthew, I told you to clean your room. Kids, are y'all listening to this? Y'all should. And, and I hadn't done anything. And she'd say, clean your room. Her voice would drop a little bit, you know, and, and she'd get serious. Matthew, clean your room. Close the door, walk away, come back. Guess what? I'm, I'm still playing duck hunt. She'd open the door. I'm dating myself. And she'd open the door and she'd look at me. She'd say, if you love me, you'll clean your room. And that would be like the knife to the chest of a little six-year-old little boy, because she's right. If I did, if I loved her the way that I said I did, I would. I would do what she asked. At the end of the day, bottom line, if we love God the way that we say we love God, if we have been appreciative of forgiveness, if we've seen the weight of it, man, when he asks us to do, we will. We won't hit the start button and unpause our game and just go back to life. No, when he says do, we'll be like, yes, I love you enough just to do what you ask. He said, this is the indicator, and by this, right here, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Man, I think for a large majority of the church-going populace, the question we have to ask is, do I love God enough to do what he asked me to do? Do I love God enough to do what he asked me to do? And I think some of us should be afraid of the answer. I think there are days where I need to be afraid of the answer. Because there are days when it's very clear what he desires for me to do. And if I love him the way that I say that I do, hesitation is gone. Obedience is there. And John here, he's warning them. He's like, look, it doesn't matter what you say if you're not willing to back it up by what you do. It doesn't matter what you say if you're not willing to back it up by what you do, and what we get to do, man, is obey. And here's the confession. Sometimes it doesn't make sense. There are times when it doesn't make sense. There are times when it doesn't, it doesn't economically make sense. It doesn't relationally make sense. It doesn't make sense on any plane. But it, it doesn't change the fact that God says, if you love me, you'll do what I ask. 
Again, the Romans hate idea that he's working together all things for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. We're not given privy to the whole plan in the moment. We don't know what he desires our next step to lead to. We just need to start from the place that God is good and he desires good. And if he asks, we do. And I'll be honest, that's hard. Here's the other tricky nature of this. We wrestle with this idea of, because here's the question that comes up. Um, If me doing these things is an indicator that I know him, what exactly are these commandments? What are these commandments? Because we can go back to the ten. Like, that's really normally where our, our head goes to. But the problem is most New Testament writers, when they say commandments, that's really not what they're referring to. It's really not what they're referring to. Now, none of those are bad. Like, Jesus didn't, he didn't uh, contraindicate any of those. He didn't say, look, all of these ten, you don't need to keep these anymore because I've come. But we need to understand what exactly is being said, and the next few verses are going to give us an idea, or at least give us a simpler way to look at it. He says so in verse 4, just to repeat, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Verse 5, but whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected or complete. So just making another statement if you keep his word. But then it changes. Here's, here's the clue. It changes from commandments to word. Parallel statement, same idea. Same indicator. He says, if you know him, you will keep his commandments. And then it says this, if you keep his word. If you keep his word in him, the truly, truly the love of God is perfected or complete in you. So now it goes from commandments and makes a synonym for it, word, spoken from Jesus, and so now it's even saying, look, not only does it prove that you are his and that you are with him and that he is you, that he is in you, but now it's saying, look, his love that has come into you, now it's being completed, and it's proven by you just keeping his word. Man, if we struggle with wrapping our minds around, man, what is it that God has asked me to do? What are these commandments? Do I go and I have to memorize all of Leviticus and all of the law of Moses and all of the original law? No, I think for us it's a much simpler starting place. And I'm not saying, as some have said, that we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Not saying that at all. Because the Old Testament is incredibly valuable. It lays framework. It teaches us a lot of things as to how we form our doctrine, and it informs our theology. But I think it's much simpler for us if you're struggling with this idea as to what it means to keep his commandments, to keep his word. The second half of verse 5 says this, By this we may know that we are in him, or that our life is bound in him. Verse 6 Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk the same way in which he walked. Man, here's the beauty of Jesus. There there are several things, but today, here's the beauty that we need to hear. Yes, he came to be our atonement, and that's a big deal. Like, he came to pay the price that we could not. He came to pay off our debt in full, past, present, and future. He came to continue to be that advocate for us in the presence of God Almighty. When we mess up, he's the one that's fighting on our behalf. But here's the other thing. Advocacy, great. Atonement, great. But here's the third thing that Jesus came to be. Jesus came to be the standard. Jesus came to be the standard. If we're struggling with what it means to keep the commandments, understand that Jesus came and he lived out every single one because we couldn't. And that's the way that he could be the atoning price. That's the way that he could be our advocate, is he had to come and live out every single one, not transgress an ink or a nod. He came and did it to its fullest. 
And so if we're struggling, wrapping our minds around what does it mean to keep his commandments, what does it mean to hear and do his words, here's where we start. We look to Jesus. And we ask ourselves this, like, and I'm not quoting a bracelet, a bracelet or anything like that, but I think the bracelets were a great idea. But in every situation, what would Jesus do? What did he do? How would he respond? Because Jesus came and he lived out the commandments in the flesh, in person, in deed, in emotion. If we are struggling to understand what it looks like to keep the commandments, to keep God's word, man, look to Jesus. Look to his life. Look to the way that, that he loved people. Look to the way that he loved the Father. Look to the way that he dealt with temptation, persecution. Look at the way and he invested in a few and released them. We call that discipleship. Look at the way he laid down his life for others. The only place that the metaphor breaks down is the fact that I can't die for the sins of the world. Only Jesus could do that. But what we'll see later in the book of John is it says, greater love does not exist other than this, that one man would lay his life down for another. If we want to know what it looks like to live the commandments out, to be obedient, to keep the word that God spoke, man, we look to Jesus. We look to his life. We look to his heart. We look to the way that he did it. So it doesn't mean that you have to be an Old Testament scholar right off the bat. I'm not saying there's no value in reading the Old Testament. We should. We should be students of it. But I think first what we should be is we should be students of Jesus. Because overall, after all, like the covenant that we're living under, this, this new deal, the fact that Jesus came to be our advocate, Jesus came to be our atonement, Jesus came to be our standard, if that's what we're living under, we need to start there. We need to start with him. I think we need to start with the way that, that he was born, the way that he grew up, the way that he lived his life, the way that he did with all of these things. Start with Jesus. If you're struggling, man, just open the book, open, start in, in, in Luke, the most universal of the Gospels, and just start reading through. Take a chapter a day and just read. Look at the life of Jesus. And after you read Luke, man, go back to Mark. There's some action there. It's really entertaining, but it's also incredibly informative. Read that and understand what did Jesus do? How did he live? Go and read John. Go and read Matthew. And then work your way through the things that uh, the people that saw Jesus, like John, what they said about Jesus. Start with Jesus. Look at his life. Because hidden in that is not just his actions, but it's his attitude, an attitude of humility, an attitude of compassion, and this overarching idea that, man, he loved us so much that he came and he died to pay the price that we could not. Anytime I read the Gospels and I'm looking at the behavior of Jesus, I'm, I am, like I'm instantly transported to 1 John 2, 6, and just this idea of whoever says he abides in him ought to walk the same way in which he walked. If this is the judge, then Jesus is the standard. And we need to know the standard. We need to know the standard. But there are some wording things with verse 6 that I think we need to understand, very much like the very second verse that we read here. It says, whoever says, whoever speaks it openly, declares it, confesses it, that we are in Jesus and that he is in us, it says, uh, he abides in him, ought to walk. That was one of my grandfather's favorite words, and I never understood why but he used to use it a lot. And it's a strange word, but he says, ought to walk the same way in which he walked. Here's the thing. Man, when we are brought into the family uh, by grace through faith, we're not immediately turned into mature believers. It doesn't happen like that. There's, like we've talked about, there's active and there's passive sanctification. There are things that God is changing beneath the surface that I have no control over, and those things are beautiful. But then there are the oughts. 
the things that we should be doing. This is a challenge to us from John. It was a challenge to the people at Ephesus, but it's a challenge to us too that he's saying, look, if your words are declaring Jesus, that your life is tied up in him, that his life is tied up in you, then you should be striving to live like him. You should be making an effort to live like him. You should be working to live like him. We're not earning our salvation. We're living in response to it. And he says in response to that salvation, you should be trying to be like Jesus. That's a high and lofty standard. It's a big one. But it's the only one we need. Like there are, like we prayed this morning, there are so many standards that are competing for our allegiance right now. There are tons. Whether it's Republican, whether it's Democrat, I don't, I don't care. I'm so tired of it. Like just speaking openly, I'm sick of other standards demanding our adherence. Jesus says there's one, and it's him. Just one. The way that he loved, the way that he served, the way that he died. Just one. To a degree, none of the others matter. They have very little eternal significance. But Jesus, on the other hand, is the only place we can place our hope that's going to hold it. The only place. What better standard to start with, continue in, to strive for than the only one that matters? We say it a lot, just Jesus. Just Jesus. There's an understanding that we're going to mess up, that we're going we're to miss the bullseye. Jesus is there, not going anywhere. There's also the understanding that anything that I've done that is wrong, that is sin, we're going to call it that, Jesus is still paying for it, still paying for it. But then there's this other beautiful understanding that Jesus didn't come just to be our advocate and just to be our atoning price. He said, I'm not going to leave them to wander around aimlessly. I'm also going to give them the way to live their life, and they're going to see it in me. If you want to know what life should look like, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Starting place, continuing place, growing place. Look to Jesus. So this week, this would be my challenge. If you're struggling with what to do, where to go, who to be, how to live your life, I would encourage you to open the book of the Bible. Open, open Luke. Start there. It's going to start with the birth story, and it's going to continue. Man, be patient. Read a chapter a day. Chapter a day. Start tomorrow, Luke chapter 1. Tuesday, Luke chapter 2. Wednesday, Luke chapter 3. Just read through it until you're done. And talk to other people about it while you're in there. Like, tell people in your community groups, tell people in your circle, hey, this is what I read today. Have you read this? Would you like to talk about it? Because I sure would. Let's talk about it. Speak that fast so it doesn't give them an option to say no. It works. I promise. Just start. Start somewhere. If, if you're beyond that, I mean, if you've done that, if you've read through the Gospels and you're looking for more, man, come and talk to me. Come and talk to, to John. Uh, seek out Neil. Seek out Andrew. Seek out Abram. Seek out these guys that you see around here a lot. Seek out your community group leaders and say, hey, where do I start? Where do I go? What do I read? I just want to know. But start. If Jesus is the standard, get to know the standard. Hmm. 
God, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that, that Jesus is our advocate. He is our atonement, but he's also the way that we should live our life. He came and he lived it out perfectly. And he did it. He did it perfectly so that he could be those other things. And so he can also point us to the way that we live our lives. God, I pray that you do convict us when we make mistakes, when we sin, when we go against the way that you wanted us to be. And God, we confess that like we talked about last week. That if we confess our sins, uh, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And through that repentance, God, you bring us back to living uh, in line with the standard, which is Jesus. God, I pray that you would drive us through your spirit to look to Jesus, to get to know Jesus, to study Jesus, to really invest in the way that he lived his life and for us to do our best to do it as well. To make a point to ought, to strive, to challenge ourselves, to push ourselves to be more like Jesus. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for paying for the bill that we've racked up that's so huge. God, I pray you continue to guide us. I thank you for loving us. And it's in your son's name I pray. A couple quick announcements and we'll close with some worship. Um, remember to pray for Guatemala, but also we have our, our faux mission trip coming up, which is yeah, not, not this coming week, but the next week. It will start on Monday. It will go out. If you, are not, uh, if you don't get our weekly emails, uh, go to our website. You can sign up to do that or shoot me a message on Facebook or Instagram or whatever or text me. I'll make sure you get on that list. We'll also be posting that on those social media deals, but if you don't do that, you can still get email. Um, we'll be doing something every night of the week, and if your community groups are meeting one of those nights, that's what you're going to do. Um, also, we're uh, collecting $10 fast food gift cards again for DSS. Uh, they use those to feed kids, and so if you want to bring those and drop those in the box, you can do that. Um, they don't have anything budgeted to feed kids when they're dropped off at DSS, and they stay there for 12 to 16 hours. So this is one of the ways that we can serve them. Um, community groups are still going. Uh, we'll probably break for the week of Thanksgiving, but otherwise they're still rolling, and, and hopefully you're in one of those. Remember to pray for Guatemala. Remember to pray for our pregnant moms. Uh, remember just to pray that, man, that I do. Like, I think it's okay to pray to get back to normal. I think that's fine. Like, I want us to pray to get back to where, man, we can gather together like one big family. Uh, in the meantime, this is working, but man, I just want to see people together. There's no substitute for being unified in place, in spirit, and in mission. There's just, there's no way around it. Um, so I think we pray for that too, and that's okay. Um, love you guys. Have a great week, and we'll close in worship.